Go ahead and be seated. We are glad you're with us online, and we are glad that you are with us on campus. And so today, we're going to continue in the book of Colossians, and we're going to be looking at a poem. As Karen said, there is a poem that Paul inserted into the book of Colossians that he uses to, ex to really exalt the name of Jesus, and it is a powerful, powerful statement. We're going to undo that. We're going to look at it. We're going we're to just see how it applies to our life. And so today we're going to be in Colossians chapter number 1, verses 15 through 20. And, and so if you brought a device, if you brought your Bible, I always like to see you using those instead of just looking at the screen because I think that you can take notes. It's, you know, by the way, for those of you that actually have this leather thing called a Bible, uh, I'm, I know they're ancient and I know that, you know, very few people have them today, but they're awesome and you ought to have one, at least at home. And then if you've got a device, make sure you have the kind of device that you can take notes on because you don't want to just be a hearer of God's word. You want to be a doer. You want to be able to take the things away that you're hearing today and put them into your life on a regular basis. Amen? Is that true? Oh man, that was so weak. Am I in the wrong? Maybe I'm at the wrong church. I don't know. Maybe I'm at the church down the street. Maybe I got just confused today. So uh, amen. Let's have an amen. All right. So that's better. So again, we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 15 through 20. And uh, I'm going to start with a quote. This quote is by A.W. Tozer. And this is what he says. This is, by the way, this expression in, in uh, Colossians 1 is Paul's expression of his own worship to God. And so I want to talk about worship because it's really an important thing. So A.W. Tozer says, worship is man's full reason for existence. Worship is why we are born and why, are we, why we are born again. Worship is the most important thing that you have to do today and tomorrow and the next day. When you get up in the morning, the most important thing that you've got going on the most important thing you've got to do today is worship the living and true God. Do you believe that? Is that your practice? Because it's one thing to say, I believe it. It's another thing to actually practice it on a daily basis. And so we're going to peek in into this poem and we're going to see how Paul expresses himself here in this poem as an act of his own worship. So we're going to start in verse number 15. The first part of it says... Uh, this is the, this again is a poem inserted. This is, what, this is what it says. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. All right, now just soak that in for just a minute. The visible image of the invisible. What we can see is Jesus, and he represents what is intangible, things we cannot see. He is the visible image of the invisible God. In Greek philosophy, the image shared the reality of whatever it represented. So when Paul is writing this, when Paul is using this poem uh, in the first century, he is using it in a very intentional way, and the words that he's using are very, very intentional. Therefore, Jesus is, what he's saying is Jesus is the exact representation of God. So how do I know God? The only way that I can know God, listen to me carefully, the only way that I can know God is through this visible manifestation that through Jesus when he appeared on the planet a couple thousand years ago and subsequently as I see him in my written word, the Bible. So getting a full understanding of God is like trying to wrap your arms around a whale. Do you understand that? How difficult it would be to wrap your arms around a whale? 
That's how, how hard it is to get a real grasp on God. So therefore, we needed a visible, we needed something that we could put our hands on, somebody we could handle and feel and see and know and read his words. That's what we needed, and so that's what God sent. Then in verse 19, we're gonna drop down to verse 19. It says, for it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness, all the fullness of deity should dwell in him. That's so amazing. So when I wrap my mind around that concept, when I see Jesus then, I'm seeing the Father and it's such a powerful thing. And what I don't wanna do is I don't wanna miss God. So let me just kind of unwrap that for you for just a few minutes. The story of the immoral woman recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, chapter number seven, is a really interesting story because this woman comes along and wipes her tears from, you know, sheds tears on Jesus' feet, wipes them with her hair, and, uh, she is, and she's just expressing herself in this amazing worship. But what is interesting about that passage is that there, the room was full of people. Religious people, Pharisees, Sadducees, other people. The room was filled with people, and yet she is the only one who recognized who Jesus was. It's the immoral woman. Is the only one in the room that recognized Jesus for who he was. To the others in the room, Jesus was a rabbi perhaps, a great teacher, but to the immoral woman, she saw much, much more. She saw someone worthy of her adoration, worthy of her worship, worthy of her response. She understood that Jesus is our everything. He is our alpha. He is our omega. He is everything we need and helps us with everyday problems. So here's what I want to say. We have a room full of people here today and watching online. So the question that I would ask you in a very, I hope in a very, contrite way is that you might be in a room full of people but do you see Jesus in the way this immoral woman saw Jesus because unless you do you haven't crossed that line of faith yet to believe on him whom God has sent religious people the most religious people in the world miss Jesus because they had their own agendas because they had their own ideas so they the goal then is to surrender ourselves and let God reveal himself through the person of Jesus to our lives. So when she saw him, she then saw the fullness of God in bodily form. So what else do we learn about Jesus in this poem? Well, let's continue reading in verse 15. It's, it's declared that he is the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation, that's unusual language for us in the 21st century. So what does it mean that he is the firstborn over all creation? This is not saying that Jesus had a beginning. The Son of Man had a beginning. It's not saying that. For us to understand, that would be our understanding if we just interpreted it from 21st century America. But we need to understand that words have meaning and the meaning, the meaning that they have is in the context that they're used. And in this context, and especially in particular in the Old Testament, firstborn doesn't use to represent beginning. It represents rank or order. Importance. That's what it's saying. And so Jesus is the firstborn. That is, he is the, he is the most important over all of creation. The point is, is that Jesus outranks all things. That he has the preeminence in all things. Over us, over life, over this world. He has the preeminence over creation. 
So we need to understand that and what that really looks like. So Charlie was a new retiree and he, he got employed at Walmart and Charlie was, in the old days when Walmart had greeters, he went to work as a greeter. And, uh, but the problem with Charlie is he uh, came to work late almost every day. And it really was frustrating his supervisor. I mean, his supervisor was really ticked off about it. And his supervisor asked him, on your last job, what did they say to you when you arrived late? And uh, this is his reply. They said, good morning, General. Do you want coffee this morning? That's preeminence. That's the idea that Jesus, do you understand? Let me, let me just simply say this to you. Do you understand that Jesus outranks you? You, under, you understand that? Jesus outranks you. And if Jesus outranks you, if he's preeminent over all of creation, therefore the only logical thing for you to do is to obey everything he says for you to do. If he's preeminent, if he, is, if he is the firstborn of all creation, then what God, what, the only natural response, the only, only normal response that I can have is to surrender to him and do all that he commands me to do. You all with that? You good with that? You're kind of quiet this morning. Like, I don't know, what is he gonna tell me to do? Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So what else do we learn about Jesus? Let's go back up to verse 16. Again, this is a poem. I want to remind you of that. This is Paul's expression of worship. He's using this poem to do that. Verse 16 says, <clears throat> excuse me, for through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Everything that we can see, God created. He made the things we, can't, we can see and the things we can't see. So here we see that Jesus then is not only preeminent over all of his creation, he's the actual creator God. He is the creator of all that there is. Now think about this. Think about this. There are about 800,000 catalog insects in the world that we know, about 800,000 catalog insects with billions in some of the species. So that's kind of gross, right? 800,000 insects now, when I get to heaven, you know what I'm going to ask God? I'm going to ask him why. But I don't know. I don't know why. There has to be a reason. But it speaks to, it speaks to, to the, to the specificity, specificity, that's easy for me to say, the specificity, that's even easier for me to say, of, of how God created everything there is. So imagine this. Imagine, I want you to imagine that you're not from here. You're not from America. And you come over on a visa, but you don't know anything about America. You don't know anything about history. You don't know anything about culture here. And so you have a friend who invited you over. And, uh, and so you came over. And then one day you go on a hike. You just decide that you're going to walk, go on, go on a walk. And so you're in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And you're around a hill. You're, you, don't know any, you don't know anything about American history or culture you round a hill and you come upon a site that stops you in your tracks. In front of you are four giant faces carved into stone. I mean, that would shock you, right? You'd walk around the corner and you go, whoa, what is that? And each head is as tall as a six-story building. And uh, the faces are perfect likenesses of four American presidents of Washington, Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and Lincoln. And you're just blown away. And you're, the first question, I don't know about you, the first question that I would ask is how did they get here? 
That's weird. I mean, I just walk around the corner. I'm looking at trees one minute, and all of a sudden, I walk around the corner, and there's these gigantic faces staring me down. What conclusions would you come to concerning, concerning this origin of these, these faces? How did these faces appear on this mountainside? What reasonable options would there be to explain it? Perhaps they happen through chance, right? That would be one option. Maybe just through chance, over years, the wind and rock slides combined to produce four faces out of the blue, and they just happen to resemble the presidents of the United States. Maybe that's an option for you. I don't know. But it seems silly. I mean, I'm not trying to judge you if that's what you believe, but that seems kind of silly, doesn't it? We, we know that Mount Rushmore exhibits three signs of design. That is forethought, planning, and intention. So when you look at that, you see there is a designer. And there's intention behind it. And there's planning behind it. Mount Rushmore is the brainchild of a sculptor by the name of John Borglum. And he and 400 workers devised an ingenious method of removing more than 800 million pounds of stone created by blasting. And then they, they spent all these years and they, and they refined it until, voila, you have the shape of each president. The carvings are scaled to individuals who would stand 465 feet tall. Over 14 years of work, the four the four busts were completed. Mount Rushmore opened in 1941. And here's what I would, here's my conclusion about Mount Rushmore is that there was a designer and a creator. And it didn't happen by chance that there was intention behind what happened there. So then when you look at a complex universe, a precise universe, a universe that has laws and order and design, and apparently, I think, has foresight and intention and planning. And when you look at all the things that work so well together, like, for example, if we were any closer to the sun, life wouldn't happen on this planet. Or if we're any further away, life wouldn't happen on this planet. So as I look at creation, again, it, it's, I, apparently it's the lens you look through because a lot of people would disagree with me. There's a lot of people that would disagree with me. But as I look at this planet and the, this universe, I conclude personally that there is a designer that had forethought and intention over this planet and this universe. And so it is a very interesting thing, I think, why people would conclude something different than that. So what is God, what was God's intent as he creates this universe, this planet, and including you? Well, the verse, the verse, the Bible says everything was created through him and for him. Prepositions are the workhorse of language. So here we discover two prepositions describing the intent of God's creation. That is through him. Everything that, everything that was created was created by his hand and his word. And what was, why did he create it? All things were created for him. Because he's the creator, we should live completely surrendered to him. Any other response is completely irrational. Would you agree? Let me say that again because I want, you to, I want you to know what you're agreeing to. Because he's the creator, 
we should live completely surrendered to him and any other response is completely irrational. But is that how we live our lives? Let me just, come on now. Do you have things about your life that are just not surrendered to God yet? I'm smiling at you. I'm, I'm not judging you. So don't try to hide. Don't look down. This is not a time to look down. This is a time to look up and look me in the eyes and say, isn't it true that there are a lot of things in your life, maybe some, that are just, you just, you want God to just leave alone. Don't touch me here, God. Don't, don't, I mean, and I just want you to, I just want for now for you to realize how that is irrational. If God is the firstborn, highest ranking of all there is, and if he is the creator, everything through him and for him, if that is true, then the reality is, is that any form of rebellion towards the one who created is really a very sad thing and actually irrational. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy thinking for you to think that you should live your life separated from his intent for your life. If he's the designer, God has now an intent for you, and for you to, for you to live that out, you have to surrender to him. So who is Jesus? Verse 17 says, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. So not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer. And if you were, if, if you were to read this in the Greek text, it would, this, would be, this phrase would be in the, what is called the perfect tense, and you don't need to know that. I'm just gonna tell you what it represents. Whenever you see the perfect tense in Greek, you always stop and say, wow, that's unusual, because the writers don't use it often. So what it literally would read, there's no way to translate the perfect tense into English, so I'm going to be awkward here, and I'm going to translate it into an awkward statement, but it's what really reflects the, the text. Verse 17 says, he existed before anything else, and he always has held all of creation together, always has, always will, currently is, and it's going to be into the future. That's how the perfect tense would read. The implications are simply this. He keeps the cosmos from being chaos every day. By the word of his power, Jesus, he's kind of a busy guy, but not too busy for you. He holds all things, all things together. He creates, he holds back chaos from the universe. That's who he is. That's the God that emptied himself of the right to be regarded as God and went to the cross and died for you. He holds all things from chaos. And that's such a powerful thing. Think about it this way. The human body, think about your own, the, 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 the marvelous creation of the human body. The human body contains one to the 10th, 28th power of atoms. That means one and then 28 zeros. That's how many atoms are in your body. According to isotope studies, 90% of atoms are replaced annually. Aren't you glad you don't have to go to a doctor and pay for that? I am. It doesn't hurt either. By the way, it doesn't hurt. In the last hour, one trillion trillion, yeah, I said that right, one trillion trillion of your atoms have been replaced already in the last hour. You know why? 
because you are a marvelous creation and God is holding chaos out of your life. He's making all things new. The body is a complex creation and God designs it and then he holds it together. That is pretty amazing, isn't it? Then, who is Jesus? Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. This speaks of his authority, the head of the church, speaks of Christ's authority. So here's the reality for you, your life and my life. The reality is that most of us here today resist authority. We do. We kind of resist authority. Jesus here is described as the head of the church, which is his body. So why do we resist authority? Well, let me just build a case of, of the fact that it's, it's reality. Have you ever noticed that there is something that all dogs, most dogs, hold in common? They love to fetch balls, right? How many people have dogs in the audience? You are blessed. You're probably going to heaven. No, I'm just, no, there's other, there are other reasons for that too. <clears throat> so, as, I was going to say as opposed to cat lovers, but I won't even go there. I just won't. I'll just repent before I say it. Okay, so I didn't say that. You didn't hear it. So it, I, don't get, I don't get emails for it if I, don't, if I didn't say it. So here's, I got sidetracked here. So you with me here? Okay, I'm back. So what every dog has in common is they love to fetch balls, right? So you throw a ball, you throw it as far as you can, as hard as you can, and your little cute dog runs out there, grabs the ball, and this is what almost always happens, it's happened in all the dogs that I've owned, is they run back with the ball, and then a war insists after that, because they're not going to drop the ball. They growl at you, they, they incite you to take it out of their mouth, you know, and you know, they, in some ways they want you to win because they want to throw you want they want you to throw the ball. And on the other hand, they just they just want to hold on to this ball. And that's kind of like you and I, right? You know, we know we know what's right, we know it's good, but there's something about us that growls at God and doesn't surrender and doesn't just let the ball loose so that we can go fetch it again. There's something about that that is very human in our experience. That's kind of what you and I do. We have this natural knee-jerk reflection or reflex to question everything, surrender to nothing, and have things taken out of our hand. And one of the probably one of the best examples that I can give you of that is that that's how most of us learned how to give. Not because, not because we got up one morning and so, man, I love to give. I'm going to find somebody to give to today. It's that we reluctantly growl and hold on and pull back until we finally get it. And then we surrender it. That's kind of human history, isn't it? Isn't it true? Maybe giving's not an issue for you, but we all have those things in our life where that's exactly how we function. And so wouldn't it be best, wouldn't it be best if God is the firstborn of all creation, if he's the creator and sustainer of all things, wouldn't it be best 
if I just bowed my knees, got on my knees right now, right this second, before God, and surrendered to Him right now? Because you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so you would want to do that today. That would be my counsel to you to, to do it today. So who else is Jesus? What else do we learn about Jesus from this poem? Verse 20. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. Now, I'm going to read the rest of this verse. It won't be on the slide. So you're just going to have to lean in and listen. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, if you were to read this at surface value, you could conclude if this was the only Bible verse you had and you didn't have a lot of other verses that would, would say differently than this, you probably could conclude that everybody gets saved just by reading this verse. He reconciles all things on earth and in the heavens. You would conclude probably that everybody gets saved, but that's not what the rest of the Bible teaches us. So what does it mean? It means that he is the agent of reconciliation. That's the first thing it means. He's the agent of reconciliation. And it means it speaks to the efficacy of Christ's death. Christ's death is sufficient to cover everything in this life and the next. It speaks to his efficacy. Christ's blood is sufficient for your life. It is. You don't need to add anything to the cross. Not one thing. You don't need to add anything. It's not Jesus plus anything. It is Jesus. It's death, his burial, his resurrection. The cross is sufficient. It has an efficacy. It reckons, has the power to reconcile rotten sinners like me. Completely reconcile me. Which means, which means this. This is so good. Which means, you know that sin that I have that's reoccurring in my life and that you have that's reoccurring in your life and you hate it? Anybody have one of those? You keep going back to it. You keep going back to the well. You go, I hate this, but I find myself doing it over and over and over again. And I'm not going to name sins. You know, I don't have to. You know what it is. You know that sin? That sin was taken care of at the cross. All my sins, past, present, and future, were nailed to that cross. And you know, you know that sense of shame that I have in my life over my past? Anybody else have incidences in your life where all of a sudden you get this overwhelming sense of shame because of something you've done in your past? You know what we all have in common? We all have in common a past. And that past oftentimes rises up and bites us. You know that shame that you experience in your life? Anybody have that? That was nailed to the cross. And so isn't it kind of silly for you to even think about it? It's kind of silly, isn't it, to know that everything that Jesus did was sufficient was sufficient. 
He's able to save to the uttermost. All that the Father gives me, I'll lose none. His death on that cross was sufficient for everything that you need. And you know where you get yourself in trouble? Is when you look for other places to find your peace. That's where you get in trouble. To add anything to what Jesus has already done for you. And my prayer for all of us is this, is that we would learn to rest in the efficacy of the cross. Just leave it all there. We lay it at the cross, at the feet of the foot of the cross. And that, and that, that begs then, if the, all that is true, and he's the reconciler of all things, then that begs again a response for me to just surrender to him and be a worshiper. This is what God wants for me. You know what God wants for you to do tomorrow? I can tell you exactly. He wants you to get up out of bed and worship him. That's it. He wants you to worship him. He wants you to become a worshiper of the true and the living God. Because he is the great I am. He is the creator of all things. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the creator and he's the sustainer of all things. And he has reconciled you to himself. And the only thing left for you to do is to surrender in worship and live every day with this state of worship in your life. That makes sense to you? And if you and I would live that, you and I would live that way, you know what we would discover? We discovered that the Bible is actually true, that I can have peace. The Bible is actually true, that I can have joy and hope and all the things that it offers. When I look at that cross and I see what it's done for me. Father, thank you for this day. And my prayer, God, is that we would get it. We would be like that immoral woman that just gets it that just gets it. That the lights would come on and we would see Jesus for who he really is. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.